John chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 18. And again, if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, I just really want to encourage you uh, to, to get one of these uh, so that you can bring it with you. It's nice to be able to kind of highlight certain things, mark certain things. Of course, it's always great to, ha- you know, the Bible's on our phones or smart devices, and there's a lot of great apps that kind of have that. The YouVersion app is, is pretty incredible. Uh, but there's also something that's just really pretty special about holding the Word of God in your, in your hand. Uh, the John chapter Chapter 18. This is what Summer read just a second ago, but let me just read uh, verse 1 of John chapter 18. When he finished praying, so this is Jesus, Jesus left with his disciples, his closest followers, and they crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, We're going to keep going, but I just want to stop for a second, and I've been doing this with us as we've been working through the book of John, but this passage that we're going to read this morning is just so full of emotion and consequence, not only for Jesus, but, but for us. And uh, this might be a story that some of you are hearing for the very first time. It might be something that this is, feels like the thousandth time you've heard of it. But I really don't want us to enter into it and just try to blaze through this moment. I want us to really kind of enter in and get our heads and our hearts around what's happening here in this passage. So they have leave the upper room and then what is going to happen in the next few hours of Jesus' life uh, is really the most critical thing that's ever happened on planet Earth. And I don't think that's just hyperbole. We have to shift our minds along with what's happening in the story. We've just finished a meal. We've had a prayer time. And what Jesus is walking towards, advancing towards, is his death. And so this morning, as we work through this, let's not just approach it again with an air of familiarity, but let's ask God to really put us in the story and feel what Jesus was feeling and understand just the gravity of of the moment. But we have to just kind of quiet our minds, quiet our hearts, um, and ask God to ultimately help us with that. So let's just take a moment and just pray that God would help us with this passage this morning. Father, we love you. And God, I just, I'm so thankful that we have uh, your word. I'm so thankful that we have the kind of access to your word that we do. We have a, a moment like this. We have a space like this. God, there's even technology that allows people who can't physically be here in the room to, to, to join in with us and to be with us. But um, God, what we need the most right now is your spirit. Because we need and desire a supernatural work of God in our hearts and in our minds to to see God you in a way that maybe we've not seen you before, God to experience you in a new way that's fresh, to have affection for you stirred up that's fresh and that's new. So God, I just pray that you would kind of shake us out of the familiarity we might have with the story God, I pray um, that we would not just listen with our ears, but also with our hearts and engage our minds into this. Um, God, I believe uh, what you say about your word, that it's living, that it's active. Um, God, that it does a type of surgery on us to reveal things that need to be removed. Um, and God, we just, we need you for all of that to happen. So Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you just move with freedom and power 
I, I pray for a, a filling and a covering, and God, that I would be guided and controlled by you, um, and God, that we would, we would hear from you this morning. That's what we want the most. So, Jesus, I, I love you so much, and um, I'm so thankful for you and, uh, and what you've done and what you are doing and what you pl- promised to complete. So, I, I'm asking these things in your name. Amen. There's three major movements in this chapter that we're going to see. And the first movement uh, in, in chapter 18 is that Jesus is arrested. So if you've ever been arrested, uh, you have that in common with Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, um, but Jesus got arrested. And, uh, and I'm just saying, let's be sure to understand that Jesus gets the fabric of life. He gets the grit of life. He's experienced the downside of the human experience. So if you're here, a lot of people chuckled. I don't know if that was nervous laughter, but if you're here and you've been arrested before, uh, we just want you to know that we're for you and we love you um, because this Jesus that we are all in on, um, he's been arrested too and, and he loves you. So the point is, Jesus is real. And don't just make him into a, a character who wouldn't understand real life. Fully God, yes. Fully man, yes. Paul Miller, uh, who has written several books that have been extremely influential on us as a pastoral staff, and he heads up a ministry called See Jesus that really helps to shape um, a lot of our kind of spiritual formation. But he has this phrase. He says, Jesus is not a miracle machine. He's not a justification by faith robot. Jesus is showing us how to be human. He's showing us how to be fully alive as a human, what he intended for his people. So Jesus and his followers, they leave the city walls of Jerusalem. They go to the Kidron Valley. They cross over up to the Mount of Olives, which is the hill opposite the city. They go into this grove of olive trees, and they've done this before. They've done this plenty of times before. They know that they're going to the place where they would normally sit and talk and, and pray together. And you, you got to remember, it's, it's pitch black dark out. There are no landscape lights. There's no street lights. Uh, they're navigating this path that they've been on uh, countless times before. And when they get there, the gospel writers tell us that they pray again. This is what Jesus wanted to do. And I, I hope you're picking up on how important that is to Jesus in these chapters, is that at every moment, he's, he's that we need to stop and pray. We need to stop and, and, and pray. And the disciples, they get tired. They fall asleep in the middle of it. And eventually, Jesus goes off to him by himself and prays. And then there's this commotion there's a kind of a rustling in the olive grove, uh, and here comes this armed force of religious leaders and all their guards to arrest the Son of God. Look at verse 2, chapter 18. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? 
So if you're not familiar or if you maybe don't remember, this Judas uh, was one of the 12. He was one of Jesus' closest followers, uh, and he sells Jesus out. He sells him out for the price of a wounded slave. And now he leads them there because he knew the place where Jesus would be. And he gives Jesus a hug and a kiss, and Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, we want Jesus. Nazareth. Look at verse 5, how he answers them. And he says this, I am he, Jesus said. Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, um, it's important to understand uh, the original language here. It's, it's important to understand the, the, the Greek here because the phrase that Jesus says is ego ami. Ego ami, I, I am, is what that means. I, I am right here. You got the right guy. Emi is the same word that Jesus used previously in this gospel account when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am life. Emi, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And when Jesus starts talking like that, when he started to use that I am language that we have seen earlier in this account, that's when they knew we got to kill this guy. Because that was the ultimate blasphemy because he was taking on the name of God himself. And these religious leaders says, uh-uh, that's too far. For him to walk around saying, in me, the light of the world, that's too much. And then when you bring that into the Greek world, what Jesus is saying is, my name is in me, I am, which means to exist and more specifically, it's the verb to be. So Jesus uh, is saying, if you're looking for Jesus, I be Jesus. I am that I am. I am God, the same God in human body. I am the creator, the sustainer, the alpha and the omega, beginning and the end. I am. And the text says, when he said those words, ego me," it knocked him down. Now, just kind of zoom out a little bit, because I, I love this scene. Uh, these guys, they march into the garden. They are hyped. I don't know if you've ever been in like a crowd of people who were going to go do something, uh, but they're hyped. They get together. They got torches. They got weapons. We're gonna, I mean, I imagine there's some guys in the group that they don't even know what we're going to do. They just know we got torches and weapons. Let's, it's the middle of the night. What could be better? Let's go. This is how guys think, right? And they walk in there and they go to the garden. They're all hyped up and Jesus pops up. He says, hey guys, who are you looking for? We want Jesus of Nazareth. Ego and me. Boom, man down. What a scene. I just imagine like all the guys laying on the ground, they're like, what in the world was that? And Jesus saying, hey, I am, it's me. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm like, by the way. I say my name, you get knocked on the ground. This is what uh, the young people would say is a flex. <laughs> Jesus is showing his power. He's actually showing them how powerful he is. I mean, he just said words, and they fell down. 
He just gave his name. He just produced his identification, and they all fell out. Now, I'm not in law enforcement. I'm very thankful for those who are. But if you go to arrest someone and they tell you who they are and it knocks like you and the whole SWAT team down, you might like just second guess a little bit like, wait, who did we come to arrest? What are we doing here? Jesus wants the soldiers to know that they're arresting Jesus out of an act of mercy on them. You don't take my life. Remember Jesus said that? I lay it down. Jesus wants them to know, you're not just dealing with some Galilean construction worker. I'm not just like this nomad teacher. I am the son of God. Ego of me. Get back. Look at verse seven. It says this, again, he asked them, who is it you want? Now, I don't know if there's like a big pause next time before they answer that question because the first time go, go around, it didn't work out for them. But they say again, Jesus of Nazareth. And look at verse, look at verse eight. He answered, he said, I told you that I am he. And if you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened, verse nine, so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you, you gave me. The power of Jesus' word not only counters enemies, but it releases friends. Let me say that again. The power of Jesus' words not only counter enemies, but release his friends. This is why we think the word is so important. Why does Jesus keep repeating that question, whom do you seek? And the reason is because Jesus is trying to find out whose name is on the warrant. And if it's only the name of Jesus, he says, then let these others go. Jesus puts on his display of power so that he could protect the disciples. You see, we, we flex so that the attention will go to us. That's how we use our power, our wealth, or position, or whatever. We flex to serve ourselves. Jesus flexes to serve us. He uses his power to serve the weak. And he's like, don't worry about these rest of the guys. You came for me, so let them go. There, there's a lot of also kind of like cross back to what happened in the Exodus account, the let my people go, the, the I am language. There's a lot of kind of tie in to what has happened back there. We have seen in John 17 that God, that Jesus guards our eternal security. He prayed that. But here we see we can trust Jesus for our temporal security as well. All right, so this scene is going on. Jesus spokes, knocks the guys down. They kind of gather themselves. They get back up. He's like, who was it again that you're looking for? And, and they say, uh, pretty sure Jesus is Nazareth. And so now Peter jumps in, and I, this is great. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Some commentators think that they put the servant's name in there because he later becomes uh, a follower of Jesus. And, and here's why. Okay, Peter... He sees the commotion, and he's like, oh, man, Jesus just knocked all those guys down. It's on now. <laughs> P- 
Peter, he thinks that he's the alpha disciple, if you kind of know his story. And he's like, well, now is the time for me to show up and show off. And he's wanting to back that up. So he leaps out. Uh, It says sword, but it's most likely a fishing knife. And so he leaps out with his fishing knife, and the first dude that he sees is Malchus. It's pitch black with the exception of like the, the lantern or the torchlight, right? And he leaps at him, and we don't really get a whole lot of detail on why Peter misses so badly, but he's a fisherman, not really a fighter. And he leaps at this guy and cuts the dude's ear off. Okay. If somebody springs on you in the dark, you're just standing there minding your own business. He's a servant, so he probably doesn't have a weapon of his own, maybe has like a a torch. You're just watching this whole thing go down, and then all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, ah, are you serious? Come on, the Bible's real. This is a real thing that happened, okay? Malchus, at the moment, he doesn't know that Jesus is about to fix it. Spoiler alert, if you've never heard the story. So he's most likely like just like screaming his head off. Probably an expletive or two, right? You wouldn't cuss if somebody just cut your ear off? <laughs> he's bleeding all over the place. Shock, confusion. The ear's probably in the dirt somewhere, right? And in the chaos of, this, of all this moment, what I'm really struck with, we talked about this in our preaching collective too, what I'm really struck is just the composure of Jesus, the non-anxious presence of Jesus. I mean, everybody else is just kind of rattled in this scene from the get-go, but not Jesus. Uh, the other gospel writers, they tell us that Jesus, uh, he reaches down, somehow finds the ear in the dark, uh, And he puts it back on Malchus and heals his ear. And I don't know how he does that. I'm assuming he had to blow the dirt off of it first or whatever. But like he puts the ear back on the the servant, Malchus, which is, this is so powerful. I mean, it's just such a powerful scene. In the middle of all this craziness, he, he heals somebody. And again, I've never had to arrest anybody, but if they have like this body dismemberment healing power, I might be like, wait, what are we doing? Why are we arresting this guy? Like he knocks us over when he says his name. He puts people's ears back on. What, do we have the right guy? I also wonder a lot about Melchus, like the rest of the night. Is he like, is it on straight? Like I just feel like, like seriously, it feels lower. Is it good? I mean, all night he's got to be like, is it still there? Did I dream all that stuff? Here's the point. Everybody around, they just don't get it. They're, they're blind to the reality that God is working out his sovereign plan of salvation right in front of them, which is why Jesus says to Peter in verse 11, he says, Peter, put your sword away, man. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me. In, in Matthew's account, he says, everybody who lives by the sword dies by the sword. In other words, he said, this is not what my kingdom is all about. It's not about like us like lashing out, you know, and attacking with violence one another. It's just not, that's not how my kingdom comes about. What does that mean when he says the cup? Because it's an interesting phrase there. As Jesus was praying before the mob shows up, the thing he was praying about was the most difficult thing that he can imagine. The the physical pain that he will endure, and we're gonna get there in a few weeks, 
is for sure excruciating. It's horrific. If you would have seen personally what happened to Jesus, you would have thrown up. It's brutal. The most heinous thing you could do to a human being at that time. But the thing that is the most agonizing thing that Christ can imagine was taking the cup, which was all the sin and all the shame of the world onto his life. Every week here, and in just a moment, we're going to do it. We celebrate communion. And uh, it's not just juice. It's that Jesus saw the most vile, horrible, horrific things that humans could do and have done and will do. And all of those things and the shame and the guilt that comes with them was in the cup. That That was for Jesus in this night. So when he went alone to pray and his disciples, his closest followers are asleep and it's him and it's he's all alone. The scriptures tell us he was under so much stress that the the capillaries in his forehead burst open and blood flowed out of his forehead, out of his skin, down, mixed with the sweat as he's envisioning what he will endure. And as he's praying, he's praying the prayer, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, please do it. In other words, Father, if there's, a, if there's another way, if, there, if there's something that I'm not aware of yet, if there's a part of the plan that you haven't revealed, if, if there's a last minute thing where I don't have to take this cup, I don't have to trade my innocent life for all the heinous things that humanity has done. He's praying for that cup to pass. But, he says, not my will, but yours. It's not what I want. It's what you want, Father. John doesn't record this prayer. Um, Matthew does in chapter 26, and Luke does in chapter 22. And uh, when you're reading through the Gospels, it's really important to kind of triangulate writers so that you get the fully orbed picture of what's happening here. Matthew 26, 39, and the ESV says this, going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless... Not as I will, but as you will. I I heard a pastor uh, preach on this, and he really dialed into that word nevertheless. And he made the point that if I want to have a life that's nevertheless, then I have to make my prayer ultimately not my will, but yours be done. And he he was saying, I can wrestle with God in faith just like Jesus did. I can tell God what my desires are just like Jesus did. I can hang in there and even sweat blood and say, Father, please let there be another way. But at the end of the day, I have to have my prayers and my wrestling in faith in the hands of God and leave the results to God, trusting in his sovereign plan. Because I know who he is, and I know that he's loving, he's full of grace, and he has what is ultimately best for me. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to wrestle in faith, but at the end of that, I'm going to say, nevertheless, not what I see and think, not what I decide and devise, but I want what your will is to be done in my life. And it's not a cop-out prayer. 
Because Jesus doesn't cop out on the last night of his life. What the prayer is saying, I do want to pray in faith, and I even want to wrestle in faith, but I always want to remember that God sees more than what I'd understand, and, 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 and so I always want my position to be not my will, but your will be done. To the degree that I can believe that and pray into that and lean into that and live into that, I am setting myself up for never the less. Because when I pray my will, not your will, Father, I'm setting myself up to get less than what God had in mind because our limited sight always gives us a smaller payoff than what God's sovereign sight gives us when we trust our lives to his great plan. So if you want to avoid your life being about less, keep praying and wrestling in faith, in confidence in who God is. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus is saying, Peter, I've already wrestled it through with my father. And at the end of the day, I surrendered to the will of my father. So put your knife away. Because the arrest is really more of a surrender. You can't arrest the son of God. The second part of the story, the second movement is the interrogation. I'm going to read kind of a big section of scripture here, verse 12. Uh, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and, and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest this year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Skip to verse 19. Uh, it says this, meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And he, I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I've always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what was said. Jesus is like, if this is a trial, where are the witnesses? There's no witnesses here. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. I don't know, does that bother anybody? Jesus is bound. He's already in a sham trial and then he gets sucker punched. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded, as he hits the ultimate high priest? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So real quick, the interrogation phase, uh, it takes us from one house to a second house to a third, from one courtroom to another courtroom to this other courtroom. It's all happening in the middle of the night. It's midnight. It's really not the time when most trials would be taking place. But these guys have it set up so that they can try Jesus in the middle of the night and hopefully kill him before sundown the next day. That's, that's their plan. And remember, at this time, uh, and Palestine is under Roman rule. So the, the power of Rome extended all the way down to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem were appointed leaders from the Roman Empire, and they would keep the political peace of Jerusalem. But the religious affairs happened in the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. So the Roman government really didn't care about the religious rules or regulations. That wasn't really that important to him. They were just in charge of securing the peace of Jerusalem so that the tax money would just keep flowing in to build up the emperor of Rome. So the religious leaders are the ones who are after Jesus, not the Roman leaders. The religious leaders think that Jesus is a blasphemer and that he's really disrupting their whole program. 
So they arrest Jesus. They take him first to Annas' house. Annas is uh, actually not the high priest this year. Uh, he was a high priest previously, uh, but the Sanhedrin really see him as the authority. He's He's older than Caiaphas. He, uh, he is Caiaphas' father-in-law. Uh, and, and so these powerful high priests are really the ones who are trying to run the show here interrogating Jesus. And Jesus' defense, which is his best defense, is his self-testimony. Notice he, Jesus doesn't go on with this kind of elaborate defense of himself. He just simply says who he is he says about himself is actually our best defense too, church. It's actually our best offense. You see, we think we have to have all these uh, like crafty uh, phrases or uh, strategic ways of countering what the world does, but what we really need is the Christ-centered, a Christocentric defense or offense against what the world is doing, against the trials, meaning like, we're just going to give you the testimony of Jesus. That's what we need to hold on to. That's what people need to hear from us the most. The, the one last note in this section, and we're going to move on quickly here, um, is what commentators refer to as Caiaphas' prophecy. And, and if you remember, Caiaphas actually stated this in the Sanhedrin in John chapter 11. He said the best thing uh, that could ever happen to them is for one man to die in the place of his people. Uh, a commentator says on that, he's like, this ill-meant but good news remark is perhaps the best one-sentence commentary of the deepest meaning of Jesus' passion in the entire gospel. Jesus will substitutionally which means in the place of or in the stead of for the whole nation, a death that will stand in good stead, not only for that nation, but as John himself explains, a death that will, like a magnet, draw into one community the scattered children of God everywhere. So the second movement is the interrogation. I want to move to the third movement, and we're going to end uh, with, with Peter. Uh, our students, our uh, junior high, high school students just got back from winter camp, and uh, I, I love youth camps. Big, uh, big part of my personal story. I love that they're a huge part of what we do as a church. Uh, I just think they're, they're so important for us. Every camp uh, in the 100 camps I've been a part of has a moment um, where something just kind of clicks. It's like the atmosphere just kind of changes uh, at the camp. And there is this move where students are just kind of given a realization of where they are with God. Uh, and for many, it's a time of repentance. For some, it's actually a time of salvation or they're just kind of first time knowing really who God is. It's awesome. Uh, it's also a time uh, where it's kind of like this greenhouse uh, that just like cooks this like hype for Jesus. And you just reach this kind of crescendo moment at these camps. Uh, I love this. I think it's so important where these students just get so fired up for Jesus. Uh, they're like, we are going to do great things for God. I love seeing that in youth. Peter is like that kind of guy. I mean, if you remember in the upper room, Jesus is telling his boys that he's about to die. And Peter's the one that says, I will follow you anywhere. I will die for you. And Jesus says, Peter, die for me? 
before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you are going to deny three times that you even know me. I mean, I just had to crush Peter. Honestly, it might be why he went after the dude with the knife like he did. Because he's like, I will not deny. I told you I'm going to die for you. And here I am. So watch what happens. Look at verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. This is uh, most likely John. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You aren't one of the man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the, and the servants and the officials stood around a, a fire they had made to keep warm. And Peter, Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Go down to verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. I've also wondered, you know, when Peter, when he went to the gospel writers, he's like, seriously, guys, you're gonna put that in there? Like, you're gonna keep that story in there? Now, remember... Peter's not a bad guy. Uh, When Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? Peter was the first one, he was the only one to say, "You you are Jesus, you are the one true God, you are the Messiah. Peter is the guy who at least gets out of the boat when Jesus is walking on water. Uh, Yes, he sinks, but at least he got out. I mean, he's very like, Man in the arena, he fails while daring greatly kind of guy. And Jesus is really Peter's whole world. I mean, he is so just invested in who Jesus is. The the ear attack thing is kind of comical, but I mean, seriously, wouldn't you want a guy like on your side who will stab somebody in the head for you? Peter's that kind of guy. And now this Jesus... Again, put yourself in the story. So Peter's all in. Even, even if his head doesn't always think it's through, like his heart is all in and big for Jesus. And that Jesus, who is Peter's whole world, is being mocked and ridiculed and beat up. And in that moment, as Peter's watching that, he's, he's just rattled. That's the context of him being questioned. Hey, aren't you, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? No, not, not me. No, seriously, I, I could have swore I have seen you with, in fact, you kind of sound like him. It's not me. I don't know what you're talking about. And, and then, I love this, the relative of the guy who got his ear cut off by Peter. I mean, word travels fast here, right? No, no, no. It's you, man. Like, your knife is all bloody. It's clear. It's you. I know who you are. Emphatically. In fact, the scripture says he even cusses. I deny knowing Jesus. Rooster crows. 
Uh, the other gospel accounts tell us that Peter in that moment was actually in view of Jesus. This is heartbreaking. And in that moment, uh, Jesus makes eye contact with Peter. And the scripture says that it broke Peter's heart and he went away weeping. Now, Augustine, he points out that Peter didn't deny that he believed in Jesus. He denied being associated with other followers. And, and even if that's true, um, it says that we may not think that we are denying or disowning Christ when we deny or disassociate ourselves from his always problematic church. But Peter's experience teaches us to think again. One cannot love the head and hate the body. When Jesus confronts Saul on the Damascus road, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is already dead, resurrected, and ascended. Saul says back, who are you, Lord? And Jesus' church-honoring reply is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So for us, church, to persecute, to slander, to attack, to ridicule, or to deny the church is to persecute and to deny the Lord of the church, Jesus. I want to I close with this, and, and we're, we're done right now. Um, Peter's story, just so you know, has a great ending. Uh, it's full of grace and full of mercy and forgiveness. But I don't want to really uh, rush to that restoration. If you want to read ahead, you can find it in chapter 21. It's beautiful. Um, because I think it's important for us to see, just as we end, how we are like Peter um, and just kind of sit with Peter for, for a, a little bit. A little bit. Um, I mentioned camps earlier. Uh, the summer after I finished college, um, I went to work at a Christian camp in, in Florida. Uh, I was not a Christian um, at the time. Uh, I actually believed that I was saved this summer. Um, I was much older than everybody who else who went to work at the camp for the whole summer. Um, I had just finished college where I had crammed four years into about five and a half. Um, uh, and most of the kids that were working there were, were teenagers, um, and they hired me, this camp hired me to drive their uh, water ski boat. So I got to drive a, a ski nautique all summer and pull kids on inner tubes and teach kids how to water ski. It was a really great gig. Uh, they also had a part of this program uh, for the people who worked in the camps all summer long, uh, something called open air evangelism. Um, and it's as terrifying as it sounds. So this was uh, just what it sounds like. There were groups of us who we would go into town and we would literally walk around and witness uh, to strangers. And mostly we were asking them, if you were to die today, do you know where you would end up? Which is a very threatening question, uh, especially from a 14-year-old. But I was... Um, I was a leader on one of these teams, mostly because I was one of the only ones old enough to drive this 15-passenger van. And on one of the trips, we went to this big mall uh, outside of Tampa. Uh, and this, this is not my, it was not my thing then. It's really not my thing now. I know that there are some people where you can start these conversations anywhere with anyone. I mean, like, you love flying on planes because you get to lock somebody down for hours and talk to them about their eternal destiny. That is not my, my jam. It's not a gift that I, that I have. So um, we go to this mall, 
And I've got these two boys with me. They're like 14, maybe 15-year-old boys. And we're walking around the mall, and we got these pockets full of pamphlets about Jesus called tracks. And we're walking around with our Bibles. Uh, and I'm, I'm very, like, non-committal uh, about walking up to people. I'm more of a, like, let's just see what the Spirit does kind of guy. So we're, we'll grab an orange Julius and just let the Spirit lead, <laughs> see what happens. Um, as we're walking around, uh, we bump into a friend of mine. She actually was uh, a sister of one of my really good friends from college, a guy that I partied with and surfed with and stuff. And uh, she was a very pretty girl. She was, uh, did some model stuff, and she's there with her friend, um, and so, which, which totally rattled the two guys that I was with because they're like, a girl, a girl. Uh, and... Uh, we bump into them. Now, I did not tell any of my friends from college what I was going to do. I didn't tell any of them that I was going to work at this Christian summer camp. I didn't tell any of the people that I partied with that I had become a Christian. Um, and I certainly didn't tell them what I did in my free time with these like Jesus papers, assaulting people all the time. So, so this girl, my friend, she asked me, hey, where have you been? What are you doing? And I froze. Like absolutely just shut down. And I, I'm, I don't remember exactly what I said. I think I made up something about helping kids and water skiing. I don't know. But I remember I didn't tell the truth about Jesus. And uh, her and her friend walked away, confused, I'm sure. And I stood there with these two teenage kids who were also very confused and, uh, and I was just sunk. I drove back to camp silent, ashamed, embarrassed. That night we had this kind of rally where we just recapped the day and people are standing up talking about like, well, I actually prayed with someone and I got to minister over here and I shared Jesus here and, um, and I stood up and I told that story, every detail honestly, and I asked for forgiveness, especially the two boys, uh, and I prayed for boldness, and I prayed for courage, and I said, God, don't ever let me do that again. Now, maybe you, maybe you don't have a story quite like that, and maybe you do. Maybe denial for you just looks different, but if we're honest, we've really all been where Peter's been. We each have our own ways of denying Jesus. For some of us, it's out loud and everyone sees it, like my story. And for others, it's the secret internal stuff that nobody but you and God knows about. But I love that Peter's story is included in the gospel because it perpetually reminds us as the ones that Jesus has called to take the good news into the world of just how flawed and fallible we are. If Peter had not been in Jesus' gospel story, the story would have been measurably thinner and considerably less human and dimensioned. But it serves as a reminder to us when we start to feel like we're too big to, to fail. There's really only one hero in the story, and his name is Jesus. And this gospel story is that he died to pay and to completely cover Peter's denial and my denial and your denial.
That is amazing love and incredible grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your word. God, thank you for your kindness in meeting with us this morning. God, thank you for um, allowing us to, uh, to see your composure in the midst of chaos. God, thank you for allowing us to see in you these incredible acts of mercy and grace and love in the midst of failure and foolishness. God, thank you for allowing us to see your gospel on every page and in every move and in every step and everything you say and everything you do, Jesus. And so um, would we just be reminded, would we be reminded of how much you love us? And, And God, if there's people here or people listening online, God, who've not yet encountered that kind of love from you, God, would you make it known and present and real to them, even right now, by your spirit. We love you, Jesus. Amen.